Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News, Editor of Agents of Change, and excited to be here today. I'm with you here every two weeks. I hope you're all doing well out there. I had what might have been my last bicycle ride with the local club here, so I'm not going to lie, I'm a little, little down about that. But hey, more time to read and play music and cook. There's plenty to be optimistic for. Winter ain't all bad. Check out our most recent essay, Nature for All, Connecting Communities of Color with the Outdoors by fellow Teresa Gouillet on how access to and love of nature at a young age can bring about increased diversity in the environmental science fields. Her experience introducing a small boy to an alligator she is researching is worth the read alone. It's such a touching moment. This podcast and this fellowship would not be possible without support. We are fortunate to receive support from both readers and listeners like yourself, as well as organizations. And today I'd like to draw attention to one of our supporters, Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, we have a fun podcast today. Dr. Ami Zoda, our fearless leader and founder, is talking to a dynamic duo in the world of environmental health. She's talking to Dr. Max Ong, an associate research scientist at the Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment at University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Tracy Woodruff, the Allison S. Carlson Endowed Professor and Director of the Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment at University of California, San Francisco. They talk about how to use science to impact policy on environmental chemicals. It's worth noting Max is a fellow from our very first cohort. It was so good to hear Max. Enjoy. All right. Well, we have two special guests today on the Agents of Change podcast. I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Tracy Woodruff. Hello, Ami. And uh, Dr. Max Ong. Hi, Ami. Great to be here. And uh, Tracy and Max, where are you two based at today? You mean... Where are you calling in from? Oh, where am I calling in? I'm calling in from the East Bay in California, so the Oakland area. And how is your air quality today? Oh, it looks pretty good out there. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I think that the fires at the moment have been... Um, are under control such that there are any. That's good to hear. And Max, where are you based at? Yeah, I'm calling in from Bakersfield, California, which is in the Central Valley. And the air quality is unhealthy for sensitive folks, I think. Mm. Right yeah. Mm. Um, and just to give it some more context, uh, Max was part of our first co Agents of Change cohort, and he actually wrote about his hometown of Bakersfield in his essay. So shout out for people to check that out. Um, so uh, it's really fun to have you both on here um, because we all work on environmental chemicals and public health. And, um, you know, because we do cover such a broad range of topics, why don't we just start off by, um, you know, sharing a little bit about why, why you care about environmental chemicals as both a public health issue and as an environmental justice issue. Tracy, do you want to get us started? 
Sure, I'm happy to start. And I, I think this topic is so important. And the reason I think it's really important is because, one, we're all exposed to these chemicals. So just to like back up a little bit about like what do we mean by chemicals? So there are all these different chemicals that are used to make products that we use, like whether it's like personal care products like shampoos and lotions, or it might be our building materials like our floor and our furniture, or it might be in our cleaning products, or it could be what people kind of think is more traditional sources like pollution, air pollution coming out of a smokestack or cars or things like that. And the reality is the scientific facts are that we're all exposed to these chemicals and many of these different chemicals and there's thousands of them that are produced in the united states it's such a high number it's kind of hard to conceptualize but in the u.s there's like 40,000 chemicals that are registered for use in the u.s globally it's 350,000. so that's a lot of chemicals so we're inevitably exposed to them and we know we're exposed to them because we measure them in people's bodies and the challenge or the reason why I think it's so important is because we know they can change your biology in some way or perturb your biology in some way, and they can increase the risk of adverse health effects. But we are both limited in our understanding about exposures and how they can affect our health. But once we know how that happens and we take actions to address them, we can actually see improvements in reducing exposures and improvements in health. So I feel like this is a really undervalued area of health, of co contributors to health. So that, that's the first thing. And then the other is we know that there are um, communities or groups of people that are more highly exposed. And that includes um, communities of color, uh, uh, black, families or Hispanic families. And we know these are also the groups that have higher rates of many different kinds of chronic diseases because we know there's why there's what health inequities in um, many different health outcomes. So one of the other reasons I think this is so important is because I think that chemical exposures is probably a very important uh, risk factor for health inequities. So it's really critical that we we contribute our science to solving this problem. That's a great overview. And, um, you know, this, I think this topic often gets, the science is really complicated. And so it's nice to just get a really, you know, kind of digestible kind of big picture view of, of, of this area of um, environmental health. So Max, I'm going to bring you in here. Um, why do you, why do you think environmental chemicals, um, you know, why are you drawn to studying this and why do you think it's an important EJ and public health issue? Yeah, uh, so, you know, Tracy, you gave such a great overview on the, the magnitude of this problem and really building off from what you've said, it's, I think, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that I've been so dedicated to in terms of research is on trying to better understand the developmental origins of health and disease, because we know from mechanistic and epidemiologic evidence that you know, these early life exposures to um, environmental contaminants can have long lasting effects on infant development, as well as maternal health after pregnancy. And this can lead to heightened healthcare costs. Um, and this will be um, burdening both individuals, but also the broader society. 
And so from an economic perspective, there is, you know, a big toll on society to, um, to essentially overcome this problem of early life exposures. And this really layers on top of the environmental justice issues that we're facing today, because, you know, a lot of these communities, they're facing multiple layers of systemic racism on top of environmental exposure disparities. They're experiencing other um, inequities in the education system and housing. So all of these are combining on top of each other and that really enhances the effects. I also just want to point out that, you know, Tracy was mentioning this uh, really large magnitude of chemicals that are in commerce, in the market, in the U.S. and also globally. Um, another thing about that is, you know, we we really have such a limited view on how these chemicals are acting with each other. And so this is this area of research called chemical mixtures analyses. And um, a lot of these chemicals can combine to have, you know, antagonistic effects or synergistic effects, and this can have even greater, you know, impacts on some of those health endpoints. So it's, that's like another big layer to this problem that I'm really passionate and interested in is trying to better understand the impact of chemical mixtures. Right. And we think about chemical mixtures and, you know, the EJ movement and EJ communities have been talking about cumulative impacts, including chemical mixtures for decades. Right. Because that, that is their lived experience. And I think the science is is just, you know, really starting to catch up, although it, you know, it gets pretty complicated very fast. Um, and, you know, you've both talked about, you know, you're both grounded in the sciences. You've talked about the uh, both the kind of the the power of what we already know about how chemicals affect biology um, and the magnitude of this problem. But I think one thing that's unique about the two of you is um, you, you do care about policy and you don't just stay in your lane of science. Um, and so, um, you know, I'd like to talk about that. So um, why do you care about policy as 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 environmental health scientist and um and and what do you can you kind of talk to us about what you think the role of scientists are in kind of shaping policy um tracy sure so i think of policy is really oh also it's all right i also have a dog too <laughs> anyway public policy is i think it's really the what we think about is or it is the actions that the government takes to make rules that should benefit the entire population. So I think it's really important to understand that a lot, first of all, for chemical exposures, it's true, you know, people, of course, are very concerned because they can, they know they're, they're exposed, they see information about this, and they want to control the exposures that they have, right? And you can take some actions to control this to a certain extent. But you can't actually control all of them yourself because they're either you don't know where they all are or they're from sources that you have no control over. And a good example is pollution coming out of cars, right? So we back before the 1970s, there was a good example of lead and gasoline. There was lead and gasoline. Even though we knew lead affected the brain, and it affected children's brains more profoundly than adult brains. And 
the thing was, is if you knew that and you were, say you were a parent and you didn't want your kids to be exposed to lead and gasoline, well, you didn't have any choice about that because it was used in all the gas and all the cars and you were exposed to it, whether or not you didn't want to be. So I think that that's the government's role is to really make sure that these kinds of sources that people don't have a control of, that they have, people have information to make choices and then to control sources, particularly those that they don't have control over. And it's also more equitable, right? If the government sets the bar for how, you know, banning or reducing pollution exposures and they set it to address the people who are most susceptible or most vulnerable. So what we've been talking about is environmental justice communities as well as pregnant women, then everyone will be protected. And the benefit is that, you know, it'll improve health. So policy is really the most upstream way to deal with a lot of these pollution exposures and to hopefully uh, address um, inequities in the system and also to remove the burden from the individual onto the people who are making the pollution. So to, that's the other important component of it. Um, so Max, I'm going to bring you into here. I want, you know, I want you to talk about why you think policy is important. And also maybe as you do that, tell us a bit about your journey, um, you know, from kind of where you started with your training to kind of how you've, you know, built that out to, you know, to include policy and decision making. Yeah. So, you know, my, my academic training has been, um, it's been a really interesting combination of, of various different disciplines. Um, you know, I, I started in environmental health sciences, but then I um, moved into more biostatistics data science uh, methodologies during my postdoctoral training. And then across all of this was this, you know, health policy training through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I think that merger of all those disciplines, um, it really forced me to think critically about the fact that, you know, as scientists, we're trained in these really complex methods to solve really complex problems in terms of environmental health, in terms of, you know, understanding chemical mixtures. But, you know, we also have a responsibility to take those findings and try to translate them into something that policymakers can do about it. And so I think for me, that's sort of been this next stage of my career is really, you know, continuing to build on that rigorous methodology and research, but thinking of ways to bridge the gap and um, finding ways to insert the problem of chemical mixtures and, you know, widespread pollution into these types of policy situations. So do you want to give us an, a, a more specific example of that? Well, of how you you're know, bridging chemical mixtures and policy <laughs> tools and uh, yeah, you, you walked right into that. So. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know. Not um, very important problem. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, we've been working on a lot of really exciting projects at UCSF. Um, I and I recently, so I recently joined UCSF in in December um, to work with Tracy, and there, um, it's been great because you know as we start to think about um, emerging 
rules that the EPA is pursuing um, or, or starting to develop. Um, as we draft public comments, we're inserting key considerations that the EPA should be thinking about in terms of data acquisition, um, making data publicly available in terms of chemical mixtures, in terms of these environmental justice communities. So there's this you know, intersection where now, as we think about ways to help guide the federal government and also their interactions with local government, it's thinking about ways to integrate um, key aspects of this, this you know, complex data issue that we have with chemical mixtures. Yeah, I don't know if Tracy, if you want to well, build yeah, on Tracy. that a little bit more. <laughs> I mean, I think there's the part that science that's like, there's a lot of stuff we don't know for sure, right? Like, um, we're doing a project to look and yeah, everyone's talking about plastics and plastics in the ocean and all that stuff, but all the different chemicals that are in plastic, we don't even know what they all are and how much we're exposed to them and all that. And that's really important. Um, but it's also important to remember that we actually have a lot of data already that we could use better. And so one of the things that Max has been uh, is, talk, is working on and we're looking at is why can't we use good examples of things that have already been done? Like, for example, in California, they've done an amazing job about using all these available data to understand which communities have more impacts, whether it's chemical exposures or social fact, I mean, social stressors like, um, you know, poverty or um, uh, their food, food insecurity or these types of factors that all combine to affect health. Like California's already done a great job of bringing all this together. This is the kind of thing that EPA, I mean, this is like, you know, you got all this stuff on your map, on your phone, right? Like EPA could easily adopt this type of tools and they could instantly, well, not instantly, but pretty soon start making better decisions than they're making now, for example, in terms of targeting communities. And this is a little bit folds into, I mean, what's great about this new administration is that they've committed to the to doing something on this. They have the Justice 40 um, initiative as well as they a commitment to addressing health inequities in the federal government. So, but we think there's a lot of things they could just use now. That's right. So I, I want to build on that. So, because, you know, we have a lot of early career scientists, budding scientists that, that listen to our podcast that, you know, really want to make a social impact with their, you know, with their career, with their life and using science as a tool. And so, you know, like, let's take this example. I think you're talking about the EJ screen. Is that what you're talking about? The California example, but like how, how, how is your shop, your program at UCSF, like how, what is your role in kind of helping to bridge that gap between this existing knowledge and kind of, you know, kind of guiding EPA to adopt certain things or to, to change, you know, to, to, to change what they're doing or how they're doing it. Can, can you kind of walk, kind of talk about that a little bit? Do you want to talk a little bit about that first, Max? Well, there's okay sure yeah there's a couple i feel like there's a couple of things i want to just um make a note about in terms of this this like practical application i so i think you know we are thinking of ways to integrate these publicly available data into um, emerging research grants and that will really help 
set the research standard on like good approaches, best practices to integrate this data with biomonitoring data to better understand potential mechanisms of child and maternal health outcomes, you know, across life course. So that's like from one practical standpoint. I think from another standpoint, you know, we are trying to work also um, with local uh, government here in California to um, better understand the landscape of environmental chemicals and their impact on present day problems such as, um, you know, uh, risk factors for uh, COVID-19 infection and severity. So there's there's multiple ways that we're trying to approach it from a practice standpoint. And those are just like two examples. Um, but I think that for, especially for emerging uh, researchers and trainees that might be listening in, I think um, as they are getting involved with trying to push policy forward, I think these are some of the ways that they can um, leverage some publicly available data to, to enhance that. Yeah, and I would say the other thing that we've done um, over the last several years is create a resource for people who want to be engaged in the public, use their science to be engaged in the public policy process. So we run a, a science response network, which I think we're going to change the name, but basically it's a network of academics and we send out new, it's a way for academics or scientists at any level, but for sure for you know early stage people to kind of to under to both understand the landscape of where science is being used in environmental policy because we have a, a you know a weekly or biweekly newsletter and then we have webinars to kind of on the hot topics and how science is being used in policy and people can engage at any level they can just read the newsletter they can they can go to the webinar or they can participate in the more more um, tactical things we do, you know, around writing public comments or participating in public comments. And we do the public comments and people can sign on and then they can get more engaged. They can write blogs or so you can you can attend at any level that makes sense for you. But it's a way to I think one of the things it's it's a little hard because we talk about policy and every, hopefully everyone on your podcast is registered to vote because that's the most important thing that everyone should do and encourage all their friends to register to vote, even though it could be hard in some states um, and to vote. And so, but I think it's hard because it's kind of amorphous. Like what, by everyone like, you know, okay, maybe nobody saw that little video thing about I'm just a bill, but if you were old, you did, but you know, there's a law, but then all the implementation is happening at these regulatory agencies. They're making like all the nitty gritty decisions about, oh, the risk is this much or that much. And they're reading all everybody's science. So that's why we really focus on that because we have a lot of, can have a lot of um, uh, influence on making sure that the best science is used. And it's also the probably the most complicated thing for people to get engaged with because there's a lot of, it's like getting a PhD, you know, there's a lot of science you have to use. Doing, using science and public policy has a lot of details to it as well. That's yeah, thanks, we for, yeah thanks for bringing up the Science Response Network. And I, I'll make sure to include a link because I think I think that's a great community you're building. And it's a way for people to 
like you said, engage on many different levels and, and also just increase their knowledge and capacity to, to engage in policy. So um, and, I do get those emails. I, oh, I okay. do, I'm on the list. I am on the list. And I get the feedback. We're always looking for feedback. Also, you know, professional societies do it too, like the IET, the International Society for Environmental Epidemiology, North American chapter has a policy committee. You can, oh, I think Max is awesome. Yeah, so Tracy and I are both very, very actively <laughs> engaged with, with the International Society. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's been a great way for us to connect with other scientists and also trainees because we're, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on the, you know, the new researcher committee as well. Um, yeah. And so that's like another way. And I think we've been pretty active about endorsing uh, letters and, and comments to um, to regulators. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you bring up this this bridge to um, to, you know, the professional societies. And um, so, Max, I, I have a question for you. So um, you, do you want to talk about some changes that need to be made in how the science is done to be more beneficial to policymakers? And maybe how you, you're, you and Tracy and, and others are trying to do that? Yeah, I, you know, I think like one of the frontiers of, of improving science that, you know, our generation and the next generation of, of emerging scholars are going to have to navigate is this really expansive um, measurement of biomarkers, data, all of this complex big data um, uh, emergence is happening. And also we have this, this opportunity to integrate this data across multiple cohorts um, in the United States, but also globally. And so I think as we navigate this, this opportunity going forward, some areas of improvement can be greater, um, you know, collaborations across these cohorts, um, greater open access to data sets and, and you know, uh, in, and to science. And I think we're, I think it's currently moving in that direction with things such as the um, Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes Program, um, and other, you know, emerging um, longitudinal and, and perspective cohort designs as well are trying to integrate um, research studies so that they can better address the health problems that we're going to be facing. Yeah, I just wanted to add to there's right this part about dealing on the cut, you know, the really forefront of these new data and methods. And then there's also just the part about making, when you put your papers out, making them usable to a policy audience. So it's a very, we do a lot, uh, we've been a, a leader in developing SMAC review methods in environmental health, which I know you know about, Ami. And um, it's, been, it's all about methods to consistently review all the scientific information on a topic. So for example, exposure to PFAS and during pregnancy and how that affects birth weight would be a good, would be something that we've done. Um, but the big challenge is, is that, you know, publishing is all about tweaking and doing these novel things. But when really, when you're trying to compare across studies, everybody has to report things in a certain way in order to make it usable to the policymakers. And I'll just give mm. 
a, a good example is uh, odds ratios for the relationship between the exposure and the health outcome that are tied to increments of exposure, right? Or relative risks that are tied to, so it's as continuous. I know it seems like very minor, but the amount of times we've dug into papers and tried to figure out what's unadjusted, what's adjusted, what it's adjusted for. There's actually, um, there are standards in how to publish to make your paper, you know, write the all like Prisma mm. guides that help make your paper consistent so that other people can use it. Because really you want people to use your science. There's like, it's really important. And it doesn't, it doesn't take too much to make it usable by a broader audience in that way, in a policy context, for example. That's a great point. Yeah. I think sometimes scientists get so focused on being different yeah. and innovative. <laughs> right? There's like the focus of like, how is my science new and different? That. Yeah. And of course, uh, there is a pressure on it. I'm not saying that's like, you know, doing a study to replicate another study. And there's been stuff in this in the, you know, literature, like, oh, people don't want to publish replication studies, even though, you know, there's a demand to do it to show that something is, I mean, maybe we shouldn't have the demand, but at this point in time, if you're going to publish on a topic that includes something that also has been done to do it, put out the information in such a way that it's useful for people who are doing these. Analysis. Yeah, and do, do you want to talk, um, I mean, I think your systematic review methodology has been highly impactful, and uh, and we teach it to our graduate students at GW, and um, and they use it, and uh, um, do you want to, can you say a little bit more about kind of how you've been able to get uptake, or to the extent you've been able to get uptake of this in, uh, re by regulatory bodies, or, or the, you know, government? generally. Yes. Okay, so I'm just going to preface this by saying it took years. Just <laughs> 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 don't be prepared to go into the science. It's kind of year, years long endeavor to see things. Change. Anyway, so and also uh, give some more context. So I used to work at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I worked there for over 10 years. So I'm very familiar with how they did evaluations of science to understand hazard and risk. And and it it needed an upgrade. Let me just say that. <laughs> or you'd be like, how did they get there? I don't know. It's so confusing. Uh, they obscure key facts. Anyway, so and I just it's not just me saying this. National Academy of Sciences wrote a, a really impactful report about the formaldehyde risk assessment in 2011. They said, oh my God, iris assessments are getting worse. That's the program that does the risk, hazard risk assessment at EPA. They're getting worse. And this report is, it's not, these risk assessments are not really that comprehensible. You need to use these systematic review methods. Like we had already started on that. So we basically, I'm not saying we invented them because this is the same problem in the clinical field. So lots of studies, they look like they're all pointing in different directions. How do you know what they really say when you have to make a decision? There was a really important paper that was published in 1990, where they looked to see what authoritative people, like experts said about a drug for a cardiovascular disease. And then they looked at the actual scientific literature and it turned out that the quote experts were saying that some of these drugs were great when they were harmful. <laughs> and they weren't recommending drugs that were helpful because 
think about it. When you do read all these papers, you can't keep all that stuff in your head. It's impossible, right? And like to know all things that bias them, et cetera. So they developed this approach called systematic reviews. It just is a way to have a consistent and less biased approach to collecting and identify and evaluating the information and arriving at a conclusion about the strength of the quality of the evidence. So we took that method and adapted it to environmental health because we have observational human studies, which are awesome. I just want to say they're really amazing and important. <laughs> That's kind of a sticky point with the clinical people and animal studies. And we developed this method and then we we just basically followed what they did in clinical methods. We wrote the method and then they basically tested it out in 10 case studies. And I think we got up to seven or something. And then we worked, you know, as the NAS was reviewing EPA's programs, we kept saying, here is this approach. It's going to be better. We got um, National Toxicology Program to take it up because they realized it was going to be very good. They made their kind of a version for themselves and through multiple NAS reports. And then finally, when they were redoing the Toxic Substances Control Act, there was congressional language written that said that EPA's uh, approach to weight of evidence is a systematic review and included all the elements that we have been writing are important for, for a quality systematic review, including a priority writing a protocol, consistent evaluation of the evidence, et cetera. That, okay, that, that all sounded very, like I haven't long did it take me like two minutes to say that. That's like, that's a lot of work. Well, I mean, it is there, like, what? So, it's, a of, it, it's a decade of work, right? I mean, it is a dec probably yeah. a decade of work, right? Right, I guess what I'm trying to, what I think is the important point here is that you, if you see something that needs to be changed, it takes time and partners and collaborators and learning from other people's experience. Uh, just that that's where we and I think Max's point about it's a multidisciplinary collaboration is really important. We don't do anything without many, many, many partners because well, it's better and it's that's the way to make things happen. So you should meet lots of people when you're young because they come back and they're still your friends, but they're in more important positions, so they're helpful to you. <laughs> Not that they are helpful to you as a friend, of course, because they are. <laughs> no, I completely agree. You should definitely form relationships and collaborations with people outside of your area and even outside of your comfort zone, because that's where the more interesting things happen, I think. Yeah, you get good ideas. Yes. So from that, that systematic review, I got... I learned about all that stuff when I was a postdoc and I was at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF and Lisa Barrow was another colleague there. That's how I found out about it. Like that's random, right? A little bit, so. Um, Max, anything you want to add here? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it's really great just to reflect and listen to your reflection, Tracy, um, especially because, you know, we are now working on another really great um, framework to essentially evaluate um, systematic evidence to inform decision making. You know, in environmental health. And, long. We got this ten years yeah. into it. Now Max is going to no, make this. Hopefully, this won't take like ten more years, but we'll, no. we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and just disclosure, yeah. right? I know it took ten years because I was a postdoc with Tracy when that started. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was 10 years ago. Yeah. So. 
Yes, tell anyway. this is a great project that Max is going to make happen. So. Go ahead. Sorry, Max. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're working on this really exciting project. We've assembled um, an, an interdisciplinary, a multidisciplinary steering committee that spans um, sociology to medicine to economics and law. And we're working with this committee to develop a, like a, um, a really comprehensive framework that will take the most pressing environmental issues that we have and evaluate them in order to essentially inform decision makers on, on recommendations and policies that can better protect public health. And I think this, the really exciting part about this framework is the centerpiece, the, the core foundation to it is environmental justice and health equity. Hmm. So um, is this kind of, continuing to sort of build on the systematic review idea about kind of once you have what do you what do you have an idea of what the science says then what to do with it kind of how do you translate that kind of into action is that yeah so sort of the idea it, so it definitely works it's supposed to work in that setting but um i think as you and so many others that might be listening to this call um might also be aware of there are a lot of situations where there is not enough evidence to, um, you know, to have this extensive systematic review on data and health effects necessarily, but we still need to act because we know that that particular chemical or that particular environmental problem um, will result in adverse effects in the population, right? And so, so this framework is trying to also deal with settings like that, where we don't have mm. as much data as well. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, okay, so I think I think we're on our last question, and um, it you know kind of brings us full circle because this is the Agents of Change podcast, and um, you know we care a lot about science communication, and we we use social media a lot, um, and so I just kind of want to get your thoughts on 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 kind of the use of social media by scientists and, and kind of what role you think it has in translating science for policy and decision-making or does it, who wants to start? Well, I think communication is essential. Social media is a tool, right? For communicating. And that's a, you know, tool that people use. We use, well, okay, fine. I'm not going to promote Facebook, but I do like Twitter. So, um, <laughs> But, you know, there's always a new tool, right? Like that, there was Snapchat and Instagram and blah, 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 and TikTok and all this. But the point being that having a way to communicate your message about your science is essential to, to having audiences understand what you're doing and to make it more digestible and to be able to take out the key points and use it for some type of action, personal action or policy action. I... I think that uh, we've been very successful with communicating. The thing is, I, I just want to really say this, like the science is, there's tons of science there that show that we're exposed to these chemicals and they're harming health. Part of our challenge is getting that science out of there and, you know, having it move, you know, not, not that science is the only factor in decision-making. I think what Max is saying about, you know, you have to consider we don't do a good job of right. I'm considering equity and policy decision making at this point in time, but 
but that you you the goal is to really get more change because we have these exposures and it's affecting our health. And so communication is just a key component of that. And being able to talk about why your science matters. Um, we, were, I ran, we ran a program called Reach the Decision Makers for many years, which was, it's not like the agent, it's just sort of like a kind of a Venn diagram to the agents of change, which was really training people on how to talk to policymakers. And I think to me, what was most striking about because I worked with each of the groups and they went to go meet with EPA. The most striking was that people, scientists, and people in general, just they need to feel that they're empowered to ask. For the, they are, the government works for them. And so I think that's the most important thing is for scientists to realize that it's okay to say this is what your science says and that to ask for something to be done about it. Great points. Max? Yeah, I... You know, I feel like I've been experimenting a lot with uh, social media and, and science communication these past few years. And it it's, I mean, I it's a great tool. Like, I think Twitter has been uh, a catalyst for getting my personal research out to um, a broader audience within my not only within my field, but also folks that are like totally outside of my discipline. And it's led to folks reaching out to me to have more conversations, um, brainstorming different ideas. So it, it, it can definitely spark a lot of really exciting things. I think I'm still trying to navigate like how to better communicate things to policymakers. And I think that's going to be, you know, an ongoing area of, you know, of learning and growth for me personally. Um, but I also think, you know, from a communication perspective, there's this, there's this side of training that, that Tracy brought up. And I think it's what I've been in my journey late, uh, this more recently too, was trying to think about ways to communicate to, um, scholars really, really earlier in their career. And so, um, this, like, for example, I, I was teaching in the this, this summer diversity pipeline program at Stanford. And I mean, these students are in community college, so they're very early in, in their career and they're from underrepresented backgrounds. And this was one of their first exposures to environmental health, right? And if this leads to like five to 10 new scientists in the area, that's an incredible ripple effect, right? So I think as scientists, we also have to think about um, the communication along a spectrum of, of not just policy makers um, and other scientists, but the emerging scholars that we can help bring into the fold because we really need to sort of um, strengthen like our, our numbers, right? I think that's a great point, right? We just need to do a better job of communicating to people outside of the academy and, you know, including, you know, our family members, policymakers, you know, concerned citizens, you know, yeah. younger people on the pipeline. Um, I mean, if, if you're doing a good job with it, then you have the potential to reach all of these uh, uh, audiences. But, uh, yeah, I just saw that there's some interesting science, too, where people are trying to actually evaluate the impact of different communication strategies, like with mm -hmm. decision makers. And, I mean, I think... That kind of stuff, too, I'm sure it's out there, but um, I feel like in 
when you're trained as a scientist, you don't really get exposed to that kind of, uh, you know, communication science, right? Right. But I, um, I think we're about at time. And so this has been um, such a fun conversation. And, um, you know, just want to thank you both for, for being on our pod and um, for all the work that you're doing to uh, both do good science and then to, um, you know, not stop there, but to push it into um, actual change. Um, so uh, and, and, and public health and equity. And so, uh, so thank you for, for that work. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it. Come join the family. Help us out. Visit agentsofchangenej.org, our fancy new website. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. Subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Amizoda, Yoshida Ornelas, Fanhorn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Sio, and Aaron Gomez. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, agentsofchangenej.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak to current fellow Daniel Carrion, a postdoctoral fellow at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, who will soon be joining the Yale School of Public Health. Until then, have a great week, folks. Music